Hello, everyone. This is Rick Thomas, and this is Life Over Coffee. I'm so glad that you are here. I want to bring to you, a, I, I think, an essential topic that we need to talk about, but I also realize it is dicey, and I want to walk through this quite carefully. Let me give you the title, and I have a long way to go, so I want to jump right into it. This is episode 418 in our Life Over Coffee podcast series, and the title of it is Five Common Mistakes Abuse Counselors Make. Let me share a few thoughts with you. There are some issues where it creates emotional tension if you speak honestly and transparently from two contrary perspectives. I think many of us tend to be on one side or the other, and being fair and balanced sometimes can become lost with some of our causes. We're either on the blue team or the red team, and we can never commingle. Sometimes we don't want to cede any aspect of of our talking points out of fear. I mean, it could sound like this. You know, if, if I admit that their argument has valid elements to it, then, well, I will lose ground on my perspective. That can be a temptation with some of our more emotional topics that we talk about. Other times, folks will overcorrect. Because of past injustices, I call this the reparation effect. There are legitimate things that, that we have done wrong in the past, whether it's within Christianity or the culture, and sometimes we can overcorrect the situation. But regardless of the reasons, we must work at being fair about our problems. And there are a few things more vital for this kind of scrutiny than talking about abuse. And so again, this is episode 418, and what I want to do, this is a common discussion that we have within our supporting community, and we have a lot of people that come to us that have been abused in in different sorts of ways, and we want to deal with these issues, and we want to help these souls in the most careful and compassionate and courageous ways that we can, and sometimes uh, as we begin to interact with them, we can see some of these overcorrections or these common mistakes. And so what I've done here is I've collected a few of them, five of them, and I would encourage you to take a look at the show notes here in episode 418. And especially, I mean, if you counsel people, this would be essential to assess yourself to see how well you are doing or not doing in any areas that you might can change. Also, if you are a victim of abuse, I think it would be very helpful because you want to assess the person who is bringing care to you. You want a competent person who has skill, has courage, has that compassion uh, to be able to speak that truth in love. Now, before I get into these five things, I do want you to know just a little bit, especially if this podcast or the video uh, lands in someone's lap who's not familiar with me, I have written many articles. I've done a lot of videos on abuse. I have counseled scores of abused people during the past quarter of a century of my my professional career, I suppose. But I also come from several abusive situations, and so I'm not a stranger to abuse, whether it's on this side of the table or the other side. 
My father was an abusive alcoholic. I have a link here that uh, talks about that. It was a horrible two decades. The first two decades of my life were just were just horrible in so many ways. I was also part of Sovereign Grace Ministries, working alongside of an abusive pastor. It was the worst five years of my entire Christian experience as far as being part of a local church is concerned. Uh, my early Christian experience, I was part of a heavy-handed fundamentalist authoritarian culture where I came from. Everybody was Baptist, and so you just picked your stripe, and I didn't know John 3.16 when God regenerated me, and so I started attending this independent Baptist church, and there's so many good things. I had so many wonderful experiences but the independent Baptist movement is heavy-handed and authoritarian in, in some ways, and so that was difficult as, as well. And then also, I have two brothers who were murdered 10 years apart, and I have links that, that talk about that. Many of you are familiar with these aspects of my story, but if you're not, I wanted to say that so that you know that through my personal experience, my academic training, my counseling experience, I have observed a lot of abuse, and I, I have also observed an overcorrection with the abuse culture. And I, I'm saying abuse culture in context of those who help those people who have been abused as well as those who are victims. And I find it somewhat alarming in some aspects, and it's not going to end well if we continue to teach and counsel abuse the way we have in some sectors of Christendom, assuming that unity in the church and healing in lives and families, that they are the goals. Now, thankfully, the story is not all bad. There are many Christians who are helping victims, and they are envisioning the church exceptionally well. And so I'm not going to collect everyone and label everyone as not doing a good job because that that is just not true. I speak all over the country and I interact with pastors all the time and there's so many of them. We just came from a, a church in Klamath Falls, Oregon, as a matter of fact, and I was so, so encouraged at the quality of the leadership there. And I see that all over the country, and many Christians are, are just doing an exceptional job, Christian leaders specifically. But there is a subculture within Christendom that is not doing well, and some of those folks are abuse counselors, they are authors. They are teachers. They instruct us on how to help victims. And so what I want to do in this episode is I want to address five of the more common mistakes that I have seen among this group, this subculture. Now, as I talk about these things, there is nothing that I am going to say that means, that implies, or suggests that is abuse is not real, because sometimes that can be an overreaction when you hear a person critique maybe our methods, as I am going to do here. A person who has been abused can think, well, you're saying that it's not real. No, I'm not saying that at all. It is real, as I just shared with you. I have been on that side of the table, and it is absolutely horrendous. Abuse happens every day, and it's devastating to too many souls. But part of the solution is not negating how our soul care training and counseling are, in part, inadequate. Can it be true that 
two things can be true at the same time. Abuse is very real, but yet our, our methods, our methodologies might not be as good as they should be. Both of those things are true. And so we must deal with these things fairly and thoroughly and courageously, as well as compassionately. And so I want to mention five things that I have observed within this subculture of abuse uh, of abuse as far as methodology is concerned. They're not really in any order of priority, just just five things, and so let me get into them. The first one is hyperbole and overreach. And now what I mean by that is that there are times in a sincere desire that these counselors, teachers, authors have that we can overreach so that we distort the truth. And in order, in some instances, we self-sabotage our own efforts to care for people. Concern and emotion, or maybe over-concern and emotion, may override the heart of the soul care provider when we want to make a difference in a person's life. And so I'm not questioning anyone's motive here uh, at all. I, I, I would not do that. But it is true that we can go into hyperbole and overreach out of a sincere desire to help. Let me give you a few illustrations. There is a book that I am currently reviewing for our community, our supporting community. Membership has benefits, and we want to serve them uh, well because they are the ones that actually underwrite our ministry, and so I, I want to honor them as much as I can. And so I am reviewing this a book on, on abuse, and it's popular within the biblical counseling world. Now, the biblical counseling world is not mainstream by any, any way. Uh, it is a subculture in itself, and within the biblical counseling world, there is this other subset of, of abuse counseling that happens, and there is a popular book within this subset, and so I'm reviewing it for our, our community And here's a quote from it. Uh, The author says, This is a sad reality when it is believed that domestic violence is just as prevalent within the church as the culture at large. This author would go on and say that 95% of the women in church have been abused. That is hyperbole, and it is overreach. I just had the opportunity to review and to read, review, and endorse a book by Nancy Percy that is coming out in 2023 on toxic masculinity. And as I was reading the book, it is a heavy, is a statistical book in some ways, uh, a lot of receipts, let's say. There's over 900, there were like 950 references through this book. It's one of the most well-referenced books that I've read in a long time, and I really appreciated that. But one of the things that Nancy said in this forthcoming book is that when you get inside church statistics, sometimes, these are my words, not hers, but we can go into hyperbole and overreach. She was talking about toxic masculinity. She was talking about abuse in part. And one of the things that she said as she has studied the demographics inside, outside the church, that there is a problem when we have a a uni-statistical strand uh, when we... Uh, when we do our analysis, where we collectively gather everybody from one group and then make a statement based on this broad range of statistical gathering, because we're only looking at one aspect of it. It is a uni strand rather than getting inside the demographic and and teasing it out and, and seeing, well, maybe the entire church is not that bad. 
And that's what she is saying. In fact, she said that when it comes to toxic masculinity and abuse, men specifically, that the demographic that does better than any other demographic inside and outside Christianity, no matter where you go in the world, are Christian men who love God, take the Bible seriously, uh, they, they show up. They show up for their life, they show up for their families, and they're doing an exceptional job better than any other demographic inside-outside the church. And then she said that the worst group inside-outside the church are nominal Christians, those who don't show up for life, those who do not take the Bible seriously. Maybe, maybe these are the ones that attend a church meeting at Christmas and Easter, but they really don't take it seriously is what she's saying. And so when you get inside the church demographic then and, and use multiple, multiple statistical analysis, and then you begin to separate and you realize that there is some really exceptional things that are happening that we want to praise God for, that men are leading. And of course, we are the worst at it as well. And this particular author says domestic violence is just as prevalent within the church as the culture at large. And so there is a, a conflating of everybody within the church. And then he will go on to say that 95% of women have been abused. And I'll talk about that statistic a little bit later. But that is a problem sometimes in a desire to really want to help that we can go into hyperbole and overreach. And you'll hear people talk like this. You'll say the church is awful. The church is doing a terrible job. I hear this within the biblical counseling world where people talk about biblical counselors are bad. Biblical counselors don't know what they do. Well, those are my people. Now, those of you who follow this ministry, you know I am a, I am a consistent critic, a, a critic of biblical counseling. Uh, I, I believe and practice loyal uh, disagreement. We can be loyal and we can disagree. I also believe in practice uh, truth over team. I'm not interested in your team colors. I'm, I, I'm more interested in truth. And so I will critique my team, but I will not collectively say that everybody in biblical counseling and the biblical counseling movement and everybody that does biblical counseling is doing an awful job. But I hear that. Biblical counselors are bad. The church is terrible. All men are awful. Toxic masculinity, which is one of the reasons that Nancy wrote uh, this book that's coming out in 2023. Uh, but I hear that. And when we go into hyper hyperbole and overreach, ultimately we're not helping victims. In fact, we will end up weaponizing them. Here are a few more illustrations of this. I have a 30-minute podcast here. It's linked here, and it, it is a, a critique of Wayne Grudem's new position in 1 Corinthians 7. Wayne Grudem went and got some extra-biblical data and, and brought it into his interpretation, into his exegesis of 1 Corinthians 7, and he has changed his view on, on this divorce and abuse in 1 Corinthians 7, and he's given us some new insight that's never been there for 2,000 years. I don't believe that. I don't agree with that. I, I love Wayne. I love a lot of his stuff, so much of his stuff. I appreciate him, but I don't agree with that position. I have another 30-minute podcast here from Chris Moles, who did a very similar thing in 1 Corinthians 7. He admitted that the text does not say that, but he went ahead and put forth uh, that view. Uh, and he also, he, he, he's done this many other times as well. For example, he would say that uh, 
David and Bathsheba was abuse, an abusive situation because Bathsheba had no choice in the matter because uh, she would have to submit to the king because he is the king. The text just does not say that. And when we shade our lens to abuse, well, we can see abuse everywhere, and that is a problem with hyperbole and overreach. I also recently did a podcast that's linked here. So there's three podcasts here. There's 90 minutes, Wayne Grudem, Chris Moles, and then there's a gentleman named Joe Level, uh, where he did a very similar thing with Psalm 105, Touch Not God's Anointed. And again, I critique that as well because that is hyperbole and overreach. So that's one of the issues. A second mistake that some abuse counselors make is descriptive psychology. Now, what do I mean by that? Descriptive psychology is where you just describe the problem. Now, that is absolutely essential, by the way. That is essential. Uh, You want to enter into their story. You want to know what they know, understand what they understand. You want to see what they see. Uh, And so in order to do that, you ask questions, and you step into their story, and you try to understand, and you just keep working with it. You believe them. You operate from a position of faith. You don't operate from a position of cynicism or suspicion or disbelief. And so you believe, and so you understand the story. But that is only a part of what uh, counseling is in general, but abuse counseling specifically. Hurting people need more than our understanding. They need that, but they need more. And though we must enter into their story to know what they know, we must also move the narrative that God is writing. We want to move it along to a redemptive conclusion. Descriptive psychology is a person who can describe the problem in part, and they're demonstrating to the victim that they do understand what is happening. And this book, actually, that I'm reviewing is primarily a descriptive psychology book. Now, that is a problem because, sadly, too many victims will settle for understanding them more than helping them to get out of the rut of victimness that someone has put them into. So we have to move the story from victim to victor. But people just, I just want you to understand me. Again, that is essential. But if all we do is repeat their story to them and and say it clearly, maybe more clear than they can say it themselves, it can be a perverse form of gaslighting where we amp up their emotions by revisiting and reaffirming what they already know. And we in 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 essence, what we do is we reinforce their victimness. And I, I see this. I, I see this. And when Christ helped victims, not only could he understand what they were going through, but he said some courageous things to them to move the story along. I think of John 11, for example. Mary and Martha were suffering because of Lazarus' impending death. And, and Jesus He understood what was going on, but he wanted to move them along to a place of faith. He wanted to move them from victimness, this is a horrific thing that is happening, to a place of more than conqueror through Christ who died for him. But some people just describe it. If you read books, read books, read articles, listen to people. Is that all they're doing? is describing, if all they're doing is describing, well, that's only half of 
what needs to happen. Yes, we must understand. We must move the narrative along as well because we don't want to amp up their emotions because now it's two people where you're almost commiserating with one another. Someone needs the courage to lead them out of this rut that someone has put them in. And so there is hyperbole and overreach. There's descriptive psychology. And then there is this broadening of the category. Part of our overcaring problem is that we call everything abuse. And what that does is it opens the door to an abuse claim when there is a better way to think about what is happening while bringing more effective solutions to people. When we broaden the category of abuse, then anyone and everyone can fit within that category. This book that I'm reviewing, by the way, I want, I want to read a quote to you. And as you listen to this quote, I want you to listen to how every human in the world fits within this quote. He's describing descriptive psychology. He's describing a male abuser, but what he says fits every human in the world. And so if you are trying to, if you're counseling someone and you want them to know that you understand what is going on with them, and if you were to say something like this, they say, yeah, that's exactly what he is doing to me. Well, he is an abuser. He may or may not fit within the category of abuser. He's sinning. He's sinning. But is this the best way? And this is where we can really amp up and reinforce an abuse victim when that could be a dangerous thing to do. Here's the quote. Again, it fits every one of us. He says, if the heart of the matter is pride, all of our sin is pride, so that's all of us, that seeks to control. All of us seek to control because that is part of our Adamic packaging. Adam, once he chose to unbelieve God, he his heart was full of pride, and he began to seek to control his universe through all these mechanisms like putting on fig leaves and blaming his wife, etc. If the heart of the matter is pride, that's us, we seek to control, then we should expect a considerable amount of resistance as abusive men attempt to maintain control. Well, of course, again, we all do that. When we want to control our world rather than trust God in the situation, then we there is going to be resistance. And again, we all fit in the category. We're going to attempt to maintain control by hiding information that may produce additional scrutiny or consequences or guilt or added embarrassment. In addition, we can expect men to work hard at protecting their image. Every human on the planet works hard at protecting their image. I mean, he just described social media. Social media is a front-facing, image-protecting universe where people just present the best sides of themselves. That quote applies to every human on the planet. And then he went on to say that intimidation may include behaviors such as intimidation, by the way, is one of the categories that, that says that you have an abusive person that you're dealing with. Intimidation may include behaviors such as certain looks, action, gestures designed to make the victim afraid. We all do this. Uh, the, a child will do that with the rolling of the eyes, or uh, a wife will do that. Women are very much prone to do something like this. Uh, and so, and there's many other quotes here. But the problem here is that we brought in the category. He even talks about economic abuse, which is it's very odd. Econ now everything is abuse. It even uses First Timothy in an eisegetical way, First Timothy five eight as a way to proof text this economic abuse 
this is not helping victims when we broaden the category to where any human in the world can fit within that category. We are amping them up. And then that leads to number four is we end up weaponizing the victims. If we don't move beyond understanding them and carefully categorizing abuse, we can unwittingly weaponize victims, blinding them to morally sanitizing all their words and all their deeds. I want to read a quote here from Mike, Michael Schellenberger from the book San Francisco, where he talks to people about people who have been legitimately abused. Again, I'm not implying that abuse is unreal. They've been legitimately abused, but because of that, it sanitizes any response and reaction that they may have. He says it this way. The dark side of victimology is how it moralizes power. Victimology takes the truth that it is wrong for people to victimize and distorts it by going a step further. Victimology asserts that victims are inherently good because they have been victimized. It robs victims of their moral agency, meaning they can do anything they want to. They don't have any moral agency. And it creates a double standard that frustrates any attempt to criticize their behavior, even if they are behaving in self-destructive, antisocial ways. Such reasoning is obviously faulty. It purifies victims of all badness, and it insists that pure victim goodness can only result in more good things, never bad ones. Such a view is obviously wrong, but by appealing to emotion, victimology overrides reason and logic, as Michael Schellenberg from San Francisco. Part of the weaponization is that we reinforce and affirm their victim identity. And you'll hear them, victims, talk about, I am a survivor. They become part of survivor groups. It's similar to Alcoholics Anonymous, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. No, we are more than conquerors. We are victors. We are Christians. That is our identity. All the abuse that I've gone through from pastors to parents, uh, from people who have murdered family members, I, I don't, I don't see myself as a victim. I see myself as a Christian, and what they meant for evil, God meant for good. And so, five mistakes that I see within the. Uh, counseling of abuse, abuse counselors, hyperbole and overreach, descriptive psychology, broadening the category, weaponizing victims, and then finally cause and contribute. Some counselors conflate cause and contribute rather than separating them and dealing with them alone and on their own merit. Let me give you a quote from this biblical counseling book. This author said, In fact, he says, as I have talked with pastors and biblical counselors, many have, in so many words, articulated a belief that the victim has contributed to or caused the abuse. And he's saying both of those things are wrong. And I'm saying that that is an unfortunate quote in this book and from that author. He is conflating cause and contribute. Now listen carefully here. If you are victimized, if you are abused, you're not the cause. You are not the cause. Never, ever, it can't 
happen. It can't be. James would say in chapter 1, 14 and 15, that a person, if I can paraphrase, a person uh, abuses because of his own desire. And so he does that. He says in chapter 4, talking about anger, what is the cause of conflict? Is it not this? You desire and you do not have. You cannot cause someone to abuse you. You can contribute to it. You can. You can contribute. You can do it unwittingly. You can do it out of spite or revenge, uh, retribution, but you can contribute. It would be, there's no way that I can intellectually, honestly say uh, that I'm the cause of my daddy's abuse. I'm not. He chose to do those things. But it would be just as intellectually dishonest to say, did I do things? Did I, did I contribute? Not to cause, but I contributed. But he conflates calls and co- uh, calls and contribution, and that is unfortunate. He's not moving the narrative along. He's just understanding, but not only is he understanding, he's going into hyperbole and overreach. He's weaponizing the victims. He's conflating calls and contribution, and that is unfortunate and dangerous. This is episode 418, Five Common Mistakes Abuse Counselors Make. I do have a call to action here. I have six things that I would love for you to uh, consider. Uh, and one, I'll just mention one of those things, is that if you are being, a, if someone is sinning against you, and that would be the category that I would prefer, if someone is sinning against you and you cannot stop it or you can't impact that, get help. Get help. If you're a wife, get help. If you're a child, get help. Uh, an authority figure disqualifies themselves from being an, a, a, a limited authority figure over you. All authority, all human authority, whether it's a pastor, a, a parent, a teacher, civil authority. It's the limited authority. It's not absolute authority. The Bible would not teach that. And so it's okay to go get help. If someone's sinning against you, uh, then get the help that you need. Also, carefully vet the person who is providing that help. Look at these categories here. See if these things are true. If they are true, you need to address that because that person ultimately might not be helping you in the way that you need. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.